Welcome to I'm Fighting in Thailand, the best news and analysis covering the economics and infrastructure of Muay Thai. I'm Matt Lucas, journalist, commentator, and ex-Muay Thai fighter. Make stronger fighters, make stronger people. Today, we will be talking to Nikia Wright as part of our series on promoters. As always, if you'd like to reach me, you can follow me on Instagram, MattLucasMuayThai, or email me at a.mattlucas at gmail.com. Thanks to all the people that have supported me so far, sharing the podcast, leaving reviews. If you'd like to leave a review, that would be super helpful. You can do so on the iTunes store. As always, a plug for my book, I'm Fighting in Thailand, a guide to the sport in the motherland. The clear guide goes over scoring, matchmaking, picking, gym, fight styles, gambling, Muay Thai culture, and more. It is comprised of a series of interviews as well with long-term expat fighters, including Michael Savas, Willie Whipple, Lisa Breeley, and Angela Chang. It educates and helps guide careers by helping save fighters from costly mistakes. You can pick up your copy off of Amazon. Thanks, as always, to Patrick Rivera for getting this show started. So Nakia Wright has been in the Muay Thai game for a long, long time. Uh, we talk a little bit about some of the shows that she was doing photos at in the States, which well over 10 years ago. So it was really interesting for me to talk to Nakia, who came out of my good friend Brian Dobler's gym in Fontana, California, and then, of course, moved over to Australia to start her own gym and business. So she's been having the Muay Thai League, which is a relatively new show on the Australian scene. And, you know, we're looking forward to seeing how those things go. She had a all-female card recently, and that went off well. So without further ado, the interview with Nikia Wright. Um, this was your second event over the weekend, right? Um, yeah, yeah. So we um, officially fourth Muay Thai League. Mm. Um, yeah, so second of the year. You had Max out as well, right? Yeah. Have you known Max for a long time? Yeah, so it's um, it was funny because the last time I had seen Max, we were like training partners. Mm-hmm. and he was 13. So I trained with him from when he was about 10 till about 13. Um, and we used to fight at the same weight. So it was really funny <laughs> to like, in my head, he was still a little kid. So I was really struggling with even booking the fight because I was like, <laughs> I feel like I'm sending this little baby to the slaughter. Um, and um, yeah, it was, it was reassuring when I saw him in person. I was like, okay, he's a man now. He's not a baby. <laughs> So, and you moved from uh, Fontana maybe like eight or nine years ago? Yeah. Okay. Um, I'm, I'm good friends with Dobler. That's why I was, uh, I sort of know a little bit of the background, of your background. You were there for a long time and then you eventually moved over to Australia. Yeah. Cool. Okay. Um, so everything's recording now. Um, so why don't we get into things? Uh, I'll do a very brief introduction and then we'll launch right into it. Sound good? Oh. Okay. 
So thank you so much, Nikia, for taking your time out today. How are you doing? I'm awesome. How are you? Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. You just had your fourth event, the second one of the year. But why did you start promoting what sort of drew you into it? Um, when I first started Muay Thai at Double Dose in the U.S., um, I was very fortunate to go to a lot of really cool events. It was kind of a cool time in American Muay Thai where there was uh, a lot of ties coming over. There was some big, you know, big Kevin Ross moments. Um, there was some some really cool things happening there. And so I just always enjoyed from the perspective of being a spectator or a fan or a, um, even when I, when I first started fighting, I just loved absorbing all of that side of it. So I felt like my um, interest in business and my interest in Muay Thai and my interest in being a fighter kind of tied together really well. So promoting always was even like always something that sort of stood out to me. So when we had the opportunity to start doing it, um, it just felt right. I think, I guess it felt like it was really like in my expertise and in my area. Uh, you talked about some of those big Muay Thai moments, especially in America. Can you talk a little bit more about them? Like, was it the, some of the fights with Julie Kitchen and then when uh, the, what, the Saucy Prapa guys came over and fought uh, Kevin Ross, correct? Yeah, yeah. So there's, um, they had the big Muay Thai in America show. So mm. uh, Julie Kitchen came over for that. Um, there was, yeah, a few times like we had Andy Housen out. Um and, and being at Double Dose was a really good opportunity as well because it was often a hub where, you know, these foreigners would come over and train. So we would get to see them train and do their last sort of prep as well. Um, then, yeah, Kevin fought Sanchai and I was fortunate enough to actually photograph that ringside. So that was, like, amazing. Um, then there was uh, Kevin fought Sacadeo as well. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there was like some really cool, we got, like Miriam was, you know, um, uh, Miriam first Julie happened mm-hmm. in that time. Uh, actually Tiffany Van Soost was sort of launching her pro career at that stage as well. So we actually watched, I think a couple of her last amateur fights and then saw her pro debut as well. So yeah, there was a lot like, now that we look back in hindsight, it was it was a really awesome time to be there, and we got to see a lot of great fights. Yeah, I was at the Kevin versus Sanchai and the Sakadao show as well. The Sakadao one was very good. It was uh, the M1 show, I believe. Yeah. Um, uh, go ahead. Is it M1? Yeah. Uh, yeah, uh, there was the... M one one as well where um, John Hod was there. Mm-hmm. They had the team. There was like four of them, right? There was four ties, and they all just put on a clinic <laughs> that, <laughs> that night. I think they all took home the the wins that night. Yeah. Um, so obviously that was a big moment in American Muay Thai. But what do you think you brought back from that, or what sort of learnings did you get from that? Um, I think being fortunate enough to be at Double Dose, I was 
hooked on Muay Thai from the minute I sort of stepped into that gym. And um, Brian was always very, uh, really great with like the more I wanted to get involved, the more opportunities he gave me to get involved. So because I was sort of there putting my hand up saying like, how can I volunteer? How can I help? Um, I just love this sport. I wanted to know like all the all the parts that I could. So anytime he had things going on at the gym, he was quite happy for me to just be there and learning. Um, and so my involvement in double dose went from just being, you know, just training and, and then eventually fighting. But I also started to work behind the desk there and, and help him with signing up members and just doing some sort of administrative tasks there. Um, and then as I sort of started doing some photography as a bit of a hobby on the side, that's how that sort of opened up that window. So the more I got these opportunities and the more I sort of jumped at the opportunity to help wherever I could, then I got to see the more back, you know, behind the scenes of how these shows ran. Um, and, and that put me, I guess, in close proximity with those sorts of fighters and got me, and then I got to see how these things happen behind the scenes because, you know, when I started fighting, I was very, um, I'd only just started. So I was at, I was fighting on amateur, very amateur shows, like the ones that were in gyms and things like that. And the Thai new year festival, like those sorts of shows. Um, but some of the, my, you know, my, one of my coaches and some of the other fighters at double dose, they were getting to be on the undercard of these bigger events. So yeah, the, the only way, um, I got to get to that sort of area and and closer in was just by offering you know my help wherever I could and and doing trying to do my part and it opened up so many like doors for me because the more I learned the more bringing that to Australia just all sort of came you know I'd seen it firsthand so often um, that I just picked up so much knowledge along the way. Yeah that makes a lot of sense and it seems like uh, you really built yourself from the ground up as a fighter, then working front desk, also doing photography. So you get a lot of different looks at the shows. Do you think that there are differences between the way American Muay Thai is promoted and the way Australian Muay Thai works? Um, there aren't huge differences. I think there's like a lot of, lot of similarities the way the shows are run. Uh, obviously it would have evolved. I'm sure American Muay Thai is very different now to how it was almost 10 years ago. So I don't know so much about, um, the differences between how it's run now. One of the biggest differences, particularly for Queensland, uh, versus how it was in California was definitely the governing body side of things. Um, the, we were actually talking with Max about this over the weekend, how different it was in the sense of, you have to show up to the event right at the start of the event in California and you would have to, so if you were the main event, you still had to be there when doors opened um, and how the California State uh, Athletic Commission was, you know, certain processes, like if you had your hands wrapped, you weren't allowed to go out into the crowd after that. You just had to stay backstage. Mm-hmm. Um, you would be there like for so long like it felt like a really long night because you had to be there at the beginning so in Queensland it's a lot more casual um you're out the back and then out in the crowd as much as you like um you can kind of if you're fighting later on in the event you can just show up 
you know, midway through or just, you know, it, as long as you're there with plenty of time to get ready. It's a lot like a lot looser than following like all those regulatory sort of processes. I was able to go to a show not too long ago out in uh, the Gold Coast and Queensland is always considered a bit of the wild, wild west for Muay Thai in Australia, correct? <laughs> Yeah, that's right. So yeah, there's there's the, there's the combat sports board um, controlling things in other states, but it hasn't hit Queensland. It will eventually, but it hasn't yet. So mm. yeah, we're just sort of <laughs> just sort of like running our own show. Well, uh, let's look at your own shows. So you have Muay Thai League. You've had four shows now. Um, the female fight earlier this year, also a recent one this past weekend. Uh, can you just talk about a little bit of the history of the show and what sort of brought you to do the show? Yeah, so um, we had done a couple of um, small things with, while we were in California where we did some in-house shows um, with Double Dose and Benji and I, um, we sort of helped organise all of that. So we had a little bit of experience and then um, we had dabbled in it a little bit here as well with just helping some other promotions um, organise with like, you know, working in with them and sort of co-promoting and being part of their shows. Um, and we were just sort of getting to that point where we felt it was time to do our own. There was definitely some things we wanted to do a little bit uniquely and, and, and do our own way. And then in addition to that, we had, you know, quite a big fight team that are all, you know, ready to get fights. And um, we thought it would be a good avenue to be able to book them, you know, that fights on our event as well. So I think what held us back for a little while was just the timing. There's a lot of shows going on. There's a lot of shows in Queensland in particular, and we didn't want to sort of add more to that. Um, but it, we just got to the point where we were like, you know what, if we if we don't do it now, we'll, we might not ever do it. So let's just go for it. And, um, yeah, so glad we did because it's just, um, it's just amazing. I think now that I'm getting to that point where I'm finishing up my own fight career as well, it's really giving me that avenue to continue to give back to the sport in another way um, now that I'm not the one that's, like, in the ring all the time. That makes a lot of sense. Something that you talked about was wanting to do it your own way. Obviously, you have a lot of experience seeing different types of fights, uh, both in Australia and the States, different sort of configurations and how things happen. What do you think, what did you want to do different and why? I think the biggest thing for me was um, I while I was fighting frequently, I always took notes on what parts about being on a show I liked, um, what things I didn't like, what stood out to me, what, you know, what was unique. And the biggest thing for me when we decided to do our own show was the fighter experience comes first. Um, and so all those sort of mental notes I had taken along the way I wanted to make sure I ticked all the boxes so that, you know, the fighters are already sacrificing so much and putting so much work to get in the ring that those little things I feel matter, they just sort of add up. So making sure that when you're, when a trainer or a gym or fighters are organizing fights with us, that 
they're not scrambling for information, that every all their questions are answered before they have to ask them, um, that everything's super ultra organised so that it's just all basically they feel like they're the star of the show, they just need to show up and bring their best sort of skill to the ring and the rest is handled for them. Um, I think along with the branding as well, just like, you know, we don't have to be the biggest and the most expensive sort of fight show there is out there, but it doesn't mean with a little extra effort we can't um, make it feel nice and and make sure the fighters feel like they're cared for and um, that they're put first, I guess. So do you feel like that fighter experience comes first as a pivotal part of your brand? And what would you say your brand values and the way you want it to perceive is? Um, values wise, definitely one of them's fighter experience for sure. That's a big, big part of it. And um, another one is um, quality fights coming first as well. I, I sat down with my husband and, and business partner, Benji, and said, like, before we do this, if we are ever at that point where ticket sales has to overtake matching the correct fights, then we don't do this anymore. It's mm. just as simple as that because, yes, ticket sales matter and, yes, you do need to make an income to be able to support the next show. However, I don't want that to come at the sacrifice of the matches being good quality and the matches being the right matches. Like I'm not going to match somebody up that I know sells a lot of tickets and just give them a fight that's easy because that's going to make the crowd happy or I'm not going to just do what that fighter wants me to do because, you know, they're going to guarantee me all this money coming in and and I'm going to put that first. So, yeah, definitely like fighter experience, obviously customer experience as well. We want the people that are coming to the show um, to have a good time and, yeah, and that the Muay Thai, Muay Thai comes first. So the, the fight quality and the even fair matches has to be number one. And how do you balance sort of having the correct fights with ticket sales? Because not, I think something that you mentioned or alluded to is, not all the time the correct fight for people is going to sell a lot of tickets. You know, some high-level fighters are just bad at marketing themselves. The, their fight, their skills are very, very exciting, but their ability to make revenue is usually very poor. Um, so mm. how do you balance that as a promoter and specifically as a business person? Yeah, it's a tough one. Um, the one thing that really helps us is we really push to get income coming in from sponsorships instead of just relying on ticket sales. Mm-hmm. Um, my, my biggest stress over ticket sales is really this, that I want bums in seats for the environment. It's not so much that I need bums in seats for the income. Um, we have a really good network of sponsors and that as long as we deliver a good product and good experience on the night, we continue with each show to get more sponsorship interest and be able to build bigger sponsorship packages. So having that has really helped us because then we haven't had that stress of, oh, we need to match this fight or we need to put this fighter on because otherwise we're going to lose too many tickets. Um, and then. I think by doing that, when we can take that stress off, then we can focus on the quality fights being matched 
And even if sometimes we go, okay, like this, you know, this guy versus this guy is a really good fight. It's one of those ones where you don't know who's going to win. Like they're the ones that I like. And if I can match them without having to even consider, are they going to bring me in a certain amount of revenue, then like it, it makes it a whole lot easier to do, be able to do that. Mm-hmm. Sometimes we have to make like those decisions for the long game as well. Um, like for example, this this past weekend we had Pentai fight Ellis Barboza. Now Pentai is from Thailand, Ellis is um, in Dubai from the UK, and that was not going to bring us tickets, you know, directly as far as they didn't have a local gym that they were going to be selling tickets at. So, um, but. We, be, we were able to make that decision for the long-term plan of um, what's good for the brand, what's good for Muay Thai. Will, will people that are there or will people that are streaming it really enjoy that fight and say, man, that show is doing good things. I'm going to support them in the future. Um, and that's sometimes like you've got to make uh, got to make decisions for the long-term goal, not just for the short-term ticket sales. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And Pentai won that bout uh, over Elias to win a WBC uh, title, correct? Yeah. So what is the next step then with Pentai's winning, you know, in terms of the long-term plan for the promotion? Yeah, so the like the original match was going to be Pentai versus Corey Nicholson. And um, Corey is a local. And... Um, when he was unable to take the fight anymore, we considered whether we re, you know, get a new opponent or whether we just cancel the fight for a future date. And then when we had the opportunity to bring Ellis over, um, we thought, well, okay, like good, we can still put on this big fight and um, this will be a good, you know, we, and that was part of that long-term plan as well. Okay, the winner can then defend their title against Corey um, so he still doesn't lose his opportunity to fight for it. And, um, yeah, they can fight at a future date. So we were planning to have all that lined up. So given, you know, visas and Pentai's um, schedule and things like that, hopefully the plan is to put Pentai versus Corey on um, in one of the upcoming shows. And, um, yeah, the only thing pending that right now is just basically I'm talking with Pentai's manager and we're just trying to figure out the logistics and make sure Pentai's going to continue fighting and um, go from there. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Obviously, having the, these two outsiders come in and then you have the local fighter, you know, challenging for the belt, it actually makes a very good story. And, you know, long term, it seems very strong. Um, you know, if Pantai, you know, vacates the belt for some reason, maybe Elias can fight Corey and the crowd is already familiar uh, with Ellis as well. Yeah, that's exactly right. And um, it was a really good close fight too. Honestly, the crowd was very split as far as who they thought won. Um, So either would make for a great fight. And I hope that Ellis, you know, created some Australian fans while he was here. I think um, people really liked his style and and were quite surprised at just 22, what he was able to sort of bring to Pentai. So um, either way, and, and even you know, title aside and Pentai aside as well. Like we could have Ellis back quite easily now and have him fight and people would sort of have that like, okay, cool, we've seen this guy fight before. We know a little bit about him and we can build from there. Awesome. And then let's talk a little bit about your recent all-female show uh, because it was, you know, that really captured my attention and one of the reasons why I wanted to reach out to you. 
Uh, why did you have it? And can you just talk about what, how it came about? Yeah. Um, when we were matching fights for the other cards, I noticed how easy it was to book female fights and we well, like I kept sort of saying to myself, man, we could almost fill an entire card with female matches. Like we had quite a lot of females. We had a um, a main female main event on the previous show to that. So watching female Muay Thai really develop in the last few years, I think it was just becoming obvious that it was the right time to do such a thing. Um, it's been done before in Australia. It was there was Naksu. I uh, had two shows in Melbourne. I They were successful shows. I fought on one of them. The promoters were great people, but I'm still not convinced it was quite the right time yet. I think mm. it was still early days for um, how, you know, com- in comparison to now. And, yeah, it was just I, I really appreciated too as a, being a promoter how well the women promote their f- upcoming fights. They do such a good job at telling their friends and getting the support and posting on social media. They're always a pleasure to work with as well, because as fighters, they're very organized and they get you all the paperwork and the, and the information you need very quickly. Um, so I thought, you know, why not let's do this. And I know, you know, we chose Nicole Bainey to co-promote it with us because we knew she was looking for something um, to sort of put her efforts into. And she's a big, big promoter of you know women um in the sport so we thought would be great a great team to have her sort of help push up push that with us and it just felt like the right time and I think we were definitely onto it because it we got much more support than I actually expected the Natsu shows were maybe five or six years ago and it uh the Aileen Barlow fought on one I believe and uh, yeah. it was a it, both of them were pretty big shows, but maybe ahead of their times. Do you think? Yeah, that's what I think. They were really good events, um, great to be part of, and yeah, lovely people and good quality fights. But um, I I'm not sure why they didn't continue it. But my suspicion is, yeah, perhaps just a bit before. I think it was we were ready for it. And you said that a lot of the female fights were actually very easy to fill. Do you feel like that is the case generally with uh, cards in Australia? Like there's sort of too many female fighters for the number of slots or why do you think it's easy to feel, fill these female slots? Um, yeah, it's interesting because I've heard conflicting um messages about you know that it's hard to book female fights and it definitely is at the higher level um because I think naturally what happens and you know this is sort of my uneducated opinion a little bit it it may or may not be correct but um I think at some point what happens with a lot of females that they get a lot a fair bit of experience and they start building some momentum and then often whether it's careers or, um, you know, going on to have children. Sometimes I think the competition sort of thins out once they get over that sort of 15 fight mark. Um, So on the top end, it is difficult to match certain fights. However, um, 
as an overall card, you know, to have that mixture of experience from people having their debut all the way through to the higher level fights. Um, yeah, I just didn't find it hard to, we, we, as soon as we put the word out there with people, we just had lists upon lists and we had to turn, we had the full card matched about five, six, yeah, about six weeks out from the show and had to just continuously turn down matches because um, we just filled the card and then that was it. That's a good problem to have, especially, yeah. you know, these days. Uh, something you talked about was, you know, obviously this is all conjecture and speculation. That's harder as you go up in the higher levels. Uh, do you think it's because of just the population size of female athletes is still not as great as male athletes? And that's why, you know, if you're if we're looking at sort of pyramids, you know, you have yeah. your base level fighters, you know, it's same for men. You have a lot of these base level fighters, but as you go up and up and up, like, you know, okay, Nong O can fight, uh, you know, Liam Harrison, Samapet, you know, maybe five or six other people, but not that many other people. Do you feel like it's a similar sort of ratio for women? Yeah, I think the same sort of thing happens with men. And I think, um, you know, starting out, you've got this big pool of people that haven't had much experience. The more experience, the more fighters drop off, you know, whether they just leave the sport or go do other things. So your pool starts to become smaller and that happens with the women the same way it happens with the men. I think the difference is definitely that we just start with a smaller pool of people to work from. So as that thins out, it becomes a much harder problem to deal with. Um, so, yeah, that's that's going to be an ongoing problem. I think it always will be. The only way we can continue to solve that is just by keeping people coming through at the at the bottom end so that people keep fighting and that pool keeps getting bigger. And then hopefully we'll see that problem, um, you know, go away. And do you think that more women are coming into the sport? I mean, my my feeling is yes, but, you know, what what is your view and why do you think women are coming into the sport or, or why are they not? Yeah, I think um, the more uh, we see females, you know, on the higher end of promotions cards, definitely that helps because even if it's people just spectating or hearing about it on social media or coming to an event with their friend and they see these women fighting and they're not just the, the show opener or they're not just one or two fights on the card, but there's, you know, three, four, five women's fights and, you know, you've got some of them on the top end of the cards, then that all is going to help send the message that women can do this just as well as the men. Um, and then I think as far as the sport changing inside the gyms, what we're seeing is I I believe there's more women coming into it because slowly as new gyms come through, the barriers are being broken down as far as gyms being more family-friendly and more uh, women-friendly rather than that old-school you know, like it's a scary fight gym. You're going to walk in there. There's going to be a bunch of scary men with their shirts off all hitting each other really hard. And, um, you know, I think now that it's people are treating it more like a business where it's like, okay, we need to make this inviting. We need to make this a place everybody can feel comfortable. We need to welcome in women, children, people of all ages and fitness and different sizes and all that sort of stuff. 
um, the more gyms continue to do that, then it will only naturally just continue to invite more women into the sport. Something that we touched on a little before was that you think that the women are generally tend to promote themselves a bit better. Uh, why do you think that is? And what do you think are some of the differences between, you know, how men and women promote themselves, especially the athletes? Yeah. Um, I don't know whether I'm not huge on like the statistics behind social media and whether that's a, something that is done generally, like whether women are just more on social media than men, that would be an interesting thing to actually know. Um, I think one thing that's possible is that women that are doing Muay Thai, it's quite, it's still unique, you know, even though we're seeing more of it and it's growing. If, if you're a female and you've decided to start Muay Thai and then you've start de- decided to start fighting, um, it's probably quite something to be proud of. You know, women are probably more inclined to want to share that with the world because it is special and it is not something that the everyday sort of female typically falls into. Um, and perhaps that's why they're more inclined to promote themselves and to really sort of let the world know, hey, like, look at me, I'm I'm doing this cool thing. And it's very inspirational. Women are really good at getting behind their, you know, their friends when they're doing something unique like that. Um, so perhaps that's got part of it. Um, but, yeah, I'm not sure if there's, like, other things behind it as far as, like, why they're more prominent as, you know, you know, they're definitely more organized. (laughs) Um, Maybe they take more time to promote themselves. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. I think, uh, you know, that touching on how they're unique definitely is valid. Uh, I talked to a woman, Gabrielle, who was out more you, and she said the exact same thing. You know, there's just not as many women in the sport. So when they do come in, especially when they're active, they stand out a lot more. Whereas, you know, there's a lot more men. So the men tend to blur into the background, but, you know, you can be just a entry level woman and get more of a highlight and, you know, exposure uh, for better or for worse as well. Yeah. Um. So you have been doing these promotions relatively regularly um, and you talked a little bit about matchmaking, but can you go into a bit more like what are you looking for when you're matchmaking and what are some of the difficulties that people don't necessarily recognize with matchmaking? Yeah, um, definitely since being a promoter, I pay a lot more attention to, you know, other people's, shows and who they're fighting and and you know watch from a different perspective as well like when I'm watching other um other shows if I've got my own fighters on then I'm always sort of watching the other events and paying attention to whose style I liked or um who brought something you know to the fight that I really respected and pay attention to who I would sort of like to get on the show um but I think what I sort of start with is uh, definitely the gym that they're coming from have is my experiences with that gym being good you know are they do they are they respectful um are they usually a good sport 
do they bring typically bring people that are quite tough and you know got a good style and and um yeah like I, I sort of start there if I don't know too much about the individual fighter I usually start with what my experience with that gym and that trainer is and then um going on from there just what stylistically I think makes a good fight as well and and like I said earlier I love those ones where you just match them and you honestly do not know who you think is going to win um because you know maybe they have conflicting styles maybe one's really good at range and one's really good in the clinch and it's going to come down to whose nights you know better (laughs) um I always think about that sort of stuff as well. So I try to stay away from ones that are going to be really scrappy and street fight like. Um, obviously, you can't always control that, especially if they're you know early days in their fight career. Um, but I do want to set a standard for Muay Thai League that the sh- the fights are going to be you know nice, clean, um, good quality fights and and like you know we like we love aggression and we love hard fights and we love a war um, but hopefully you know where we can control it, we try to sort of stay away from the, the the real scrappy ones. We want people to you know really respect the fights and and the quality of these athletes. That makes a lot of sense. Something that you mentioned was when you go to fights now when you're cornering fighters, you look at the event itself and how it is organized. Can you talk about some of the specifics that you're looking at? Because I feel like most athletes and fans, when they're looking at the show, they're just looking in a narrow sort of lane at the fight uh, itself. They're not necessarily looking at other things. So what are some of the other key factors that you are looking at? Yeah. Um, man, so many different things. Like one, obviously being behind the scenes, always paying attention to how it's organized and whether we feel like as a team or as a um, trainer, we have the information we need. We know what's expected of us. Um, Weigh-ins are run smoothly. You know, when we get there, we're not running around and fussing about trying to figure out getting entrance music to the DJ or um, where do we send our bloods to? Like there's just all that. Like I always pay attention if that process is simple and easy to follow, especially for fighters. Like when they're cutting weight in that last week, they don't want to have to be worrying about all those little details. Like they should be focusing on cutting weight and getting, you know, getting to the fight and um, uh, performing, not, not all that other stuff, you know. So I always pay attention to that side. And then when I'm at the actual event as well, um, one of my big things and probably frustrates the hell out of the venue staff is um, how well you can see from everywhere in the venue. So I sort of, when we're setting up the venue, I almost go around and sit in all the different areas and actually sit in a chair and look at the ring. And I'm like, can I, like, if I just paid $60 for this ticket, am I happy I paid $60 for it? Because um, there's nothing worse when you get to a venue, you paid for a seat, you sit down and you're right behind like the pole or something and you actually can't see most of the ring. So that's something that's definitely um, one of my things that I sort of always look for. Uh, yeah. And then just the, I guess the environment as well, like, does it, you know, does it feel good? Is the energy good in the venue? Um, yeah, all that sort of stuff. That makes a lot of sense. I recently went to a show here in Bangkok and it was in a hotel lobby. They 
you know, a last minute setup and there were huge pillars in the room. So a lot of the viewing area for the fight was just obstructed and people were like leaning around the pillars and having all sorts of headaches. It was, you know, it was pretty funny and interesting, but can definitely understand why you as a promoter would want to go around and, you know, sit at all these places. Do you, um, in terms of take, uh, online viewing and uh, that sort of thing, is that something you're pursuing? And how do you organize that aspect? Yeah, so right now we work with the streaming company that we use and it's just a continuing um, thing that we've got to keep trying to develop as, as we go for each show to keep making sure we improve it. Uh, ultimately, like I'm really fortunate the girl, I've got a sort of production manager who she does a lot of our promo videos leading up to the event and sort of films. We, we decided like a little docu-series, so she creates all of that, promoting the show up until it. And then on the night she's sort of in charge of um, the production. So she's really all over that, which is great. Um, so the biggest thing we're trying to push now is just getting that within our budget every time, just that little bit bigger and better so that it continues to be an evolving scale. Um, and yeah, we, we stream online. Um, we started off the first show was a pretty basic setup. We had, um, yeah, not, it, you know, it was pretty standard filming and then you go purchase it online and, and off you go. But now as we evolve, um, we're sort of trying to get like, you know, promo videos and commercials playing in between the fights. So there's something always going on if you are streaming it enough credit to our sponsors as well. So obviously they, our sponsors are getting the exposure they deserve, you know, for everybody streaming it. Um, ultimately, you know, when we look at one championship as our goal, basically. So when you watch one championship stream, um, you can hear every kick and punch because they've obviously got like some kind of mic set up so that when they're kicking and punching, you can hear that like slap noise. So ultimately we want to sort of be able to, uh, you, you feel like you're in the cage with them um, hearing all of those sounds. So ultimately that's sort of what we're, we want to get to. Yeah. That, it's interesting that you mentioned that I work obviously for Fairtex by promotion commentating there regularly. And one championship is definitely the model for Fairtex. And one of the things that they've done is they've added mics in the corner. Uh, they also have one attached to the referee. Um, and then along the ring as well. So the interesting thing about it is you can hear the uh, corner is very, very loudly when they give instructions. Um, and the same thing with the referee who is mic'd up. So yuk, yak, chalk, you know, it, it's very resounding in the stadium, which adds, uh, I think, a very, very interesting level uh, if you are able to tune into that audio and what people are saying during the fight. Yeah, definitely. I think all that, and it's those sorts of things that um, unless you're like a tech sort of inclined person, you probably don't realize why that promotion feels better um, or that stream feels better. You just put, all you know is that you watch it and you like it. And it seems it just is higher quality and you might not know it's because of a mic here or, or a extra camera here, but it all does really make a difference, I think. And um, yeah, hopefully we can continue to build the budget a bit bigger so we can continue to 
um, deliver that experience because like we have no problems filling the room um, and that's that's not going to be an issue for us going forward. But if we want to expand the show and expand the brand and keep bringing bigger fights, then the only way we can do that is bigger sponsorship, um, bigger production and more like more international online exposure so that we're not just relying on bums in seats. And just in terms of that online exposure, how are you going to be able to accomplish that? Um, yeah, it's definitely like a rolling thing. So, um, to start with, hopefully we can continue to bring more international fights. Um, because obviously when you, you know, this show was a big one for us, it really put us, you know, getting us noticed internationally, having some ties on there and having, um, Ellis on there as well. He has like quite a big following. So we, our, our pages grew quite a, substantially over that eight-week period. Um, we had a lot more international live streams than we'd have before as well. And that's, I think, I think we've got to start there, just keep, and, and obviously it's a treat for Australia as well to bring internationals over to fight. So we want to start there and keep continuing to do that. We, we won't have it in the budget to do that four times a year um, just yet, but, you know, hopefully in the future we will. And then from there, just, um, yeah, the, the production quality and bringing up that level of, um, exposure, like, sorry, bringing up that level of quality in the, in the stream will hopefully people will then want to buy the product again, even if it's maybe, you know, not their friend that's fighting, then ultimately you want people to just support the event because they're good fights and they want to watch it, not just because they know someone that's on the card. And something you mentioned was Elias has a good following. Did that factor into you having him on the show and why or why not? Um, it did, but not a huge amount. Um, like for sure, you know, I thought it was going to be a benefit um, and it sort of made it the decision hurt a little less in the sense of, okay, we're not going to get any ticket sales directly out of this fight um but more so like my decision to make that fight was more that we originally we had pentai booked to fight mm -hmm. um it was unfortunate that Corey wasn't able to fight but we were like look we were a wbc promotion we had this international title fight booked and we want to continue with what we set out to do um and ellis was there ready available he had a couple of fights fall through i started talking with his team and they were absolute dream to deal with so the rest just happened naturally but it definitely helps like if if there are fighters out there that can get the kind of following and the kind of attention that ellis has gotten for himself it's going to open doors obviously your skill set and your talent has to match like like if if he had a huge following and didn't fight very well, it wouldn't it wouldn't be a great result in the end. But so if he you know booking him a fight with Pentai, it it wouldn't have been a good decision if he got here and then just got absolutely smashed, you know. But um, so you've got to be able to walk the walk. But people should take a like something out of his book for sure. He promotes himself constantly and he does a good job of it and the more fighters do that, the more they can get themselves more opportunities. Just a few more things before we wrap up. Uh, obviously it was for a WBC title. Why did you decide to work with the WBC rather than 
you know, start having your own sanctioning belts? Uh, yeah, so I think uh, my own experience as a fighter, the ultimate goal for most of us is that green and gold belt, um, whether it's at a state level or above. It's definitely something that, and even just talking out of the fighters, it's it's the one they're all chasing. Um, so we wanted to offer, be able to offer that prestige belt. I know for me personally, I turned away title belts um, opportunities until I got a chance at a WBC. So I just wasn't interested. There's There are title belts absolutely everywhere, especially in Queensland. There are so many sanctioning bodies. There are so many belts um unfortunately they have lost their um what would you what would you call it they've lost their sort of specialty I guess you know with there being so many available to people now however WBC do at least hold their standards um you know intact you know not anybody can go for one you have to meet certain criteria you you do have to be um the best in the state or the country you have to be ranked if you want to go for those international ones. So I think that that's um, as much you and, and having that goal to work towards when we went to promoting, it was only natural to want to represent, you know, the same belt that, that was the sort of the, the pinnacle of Muay Thai in my opinion. Awesome. And what are some of your long-term growth plans for the show and the promotion? Um, yeah, like I, the sky's the limit. We don't really have any um, cap on where we want to take it. I would love to, uh, we're going to stick with the format at the moment of four shows a year. So we're going to continue the female card once a year, um, kicking that off at the beginning of every year. And then we want to continue to have at least one World Series sort of themed event where we have some big international fights every year as well. And then our um, possibly a, a bit more of one card being a bit more local, so a bit more Australian-based. And then the fourth card of the year will actually be, we just announced we are working with Kieran Kettle on a Muay Thai World Cup each year. Um, so we'll be sort of co-promoted, like it'll be Muay Thai League Presents, Muay Thai World Cup. Um, so, yeah, we kind of have like, it's cool because we've got four shows, but they're all slightly different um, goals. Uh, as far as the brand goes, yeah, just bigger fights, bigger production, higher quality, um, bigger budget so we can, you know, pay fighters more. And um, who knows, like we, we'd love to travel with it and take it outside of Queensland like the yeah the sky's the limit awesome and just wrapping things up is there anything that you wanted to talk about that we didn't get a chance to talk about um no I don't think so I think yeah this is yeah being good we we definitely get asked a lot if we're continuing this female card and we we for sure will every year um, I don't think it's needed more than once a year at the moment. I think we want to keep it pretty special. Um, but yeah, I, I, I hope, um, uh, one, one thing I will say it might be helpful to people is I think for fighters, uh, the more you get behind a promoter and support them and for gyms and trainers as well, the more those opportunities will repay you 
in the future. Um, one decision we make when we fly in fighters and we book, you know, interstate or international opponents is we want to do that for the fighters that have first supported us. Um, so if, you know, if they're, when we first started the show, you know, we knew if we were going to be capable of it. So the gyms that were first on board to jump on board and submit fighters and were excited for us to do the show and wanted to be part of it, they are the gyms and the fighters now that we want to repay that opportunity to. Um, because And the ones that sort of they put aside, you know, our dates and say, okay, well, we know you guys have date. We have, you have shows on these dates. So we're going to make sure we can be there. We can make sure we can submit fighters to you and, and try to help prioritize your show and be part of it. Um, those are the gyms that we then go, okay, cool. We've got to fly you an interstate opponent in. Let's do it. Or, or you're on that top end of the card and we can bring you someone in international and give you that opportunity to fight an international for sure, we're going to do it. We're willing to spend the money to do it. Um, yeah, it it pays off. I think when you work closely with a promoter, and um, you, if they you give them your loyalty, then I think those opportunities will repay you. I know that happened to me in my fight career, working closely with certain promoters, um, and it's something that trainers and fighters should definitely think about if they want to be able to see themselves getting those opportunities. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time, Nikia. Um, when is your next show? Do you have something set in stone yet? Yes, the next one is September 3rd. All right. Well, I look forward to hearing and seeing more Muay Thai League on September 3rd. Lovely. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Yep. Thank you. That was a really interesting interview with Nikia. Really went over a lot of the brass tacks of promoting and some of the, you know, basics of the business side of promoting. One of the things that she talked about, um, I think, a lot of fighters should really pay attention to, is how people that are invested in the promotion, the promotion will in turn invest with them you know, fly them out, give them opportunities, and why that is so important uh, for fighters and their careers is, you know, when you invest in things long-term, you eventually get a big payout. So great to talk to Nakia and looking forward to her next show. This has been Unfinding in Thailand, the best news and analysis covering the economics and infrastructure of Muay Thai. I'm Matt Lucas, journalist, commentator, and ex-Muay Thai fighter. Make stronger fighters, make stronger people. <laughs>